0: This is, I think, the fourth or the fifth town hall that the Community Health Action Group has hosted. So I think most of you are aware, but just for the live stream and for those folks who aren't familiar, Community Health Action Group is a group of um, concerned community members who are organized around, basically trying to bring accountability, transparency, and to turn our hospital around, Hoboth McKinley Christian Hospital. So the reason why we're here today is because um, you know we wanted to, exclusively devote this forum to discussing some solutions and to demonstrate the level of local expertise that we have here in our community and to talk about a way forward. So, um, just, so just to bring us all up to speed here. This is what's happened over the last seven months. Um, so we've got, I, and I won't go over, you know, all of the issues that we've had in detail because I think most of, in this room, of us in this room are, are well aware of them. But we have a hospital, Rehoboth McKinley Christian Hospital, which is, the only, is, which is a hospital that serves um, the communities in this area. So 75% of the patients who go there are Native American coming from Navajo or Zuni. And um, we have a community hospital here that is the only place that people in this county have to go if they are not able to seek care with the Indian Health Service system. We have a hospital that is certainly financially distressed and has become increasingly so. Reports have varied, but we believe that there is less than seven days of cash on hand at the hospital currently, And it appears that certain payment mechanisms may not have been appropriately utilized. and it t- and it appears that there may be some other investments that are um, taking some time to implement. What is very obvious to the community because we all know people who work at the hospital, is that we have seen a significant exodus of employees from the hospital. over sixty five percent of nurses have gone since the tenure of this current of, of, um, Community Hospital Corporation, which is the current management company that has been at the hospital over the last 18 months. So over 65% of nurses are gone. Over 40% of the permanent physicians who are on staff have left. And it, to this date, it seems very unclear that there is any plan for recruitment or retention of employees. So there may be a job fair here or there. We know that um, adver- that there have been advertisements for locums nurses, um, but you know, really, what we're asking for is a much bigger plan to demonstrate that there is wholesale cultural change that is occurring that will bring back people who are working at the, who work at the hospital. We've experienced the loss of the family medicine residency. The family medicine residency, which was to serve as a pipeline for many, um, you know, new physicians to come to the community, become attached to the community, and stay here. All of, uh, all of the residents who started with the residency this year have all found places elsewhere, and it seems pretty certain that the next year there will not be a family medicine residency. We've seen the community go and grow increasingly frustrated. So as a community group, we've actually spent quite a bit of time listening to the community over the course of four town halls. We've initiated a, two petitions where people could leave comments about what their vision of leadership for the hospital is, and we've gotten a lot of insight from that. We've had people proactively reaching out to us to talk about the problems at the hospital. We've heard from community members alike who are frustrated that college clinic has closed and they're still, to this date, unable to get prescriptions filled or kit to get um, appointments made. And we've heard from staff members who are frustrated because they feel that their needs and um, and their desire to serve patients in a safe environment are not being heard. We've had people who are showing shown up to board meetings, shown up to the county commissioners, and it's clear that our decision makers, including the county commissioners, are looking for a solution. They said at the last the last two um, meetings of the county commission, and that they're they're asking the community to step up. And so that's part of why we're here. Here we're, we asked you here today, because we're here to talk about solutions. We want to hear what questions you have, and we want to see what's um, you know, we want to um, talk about a way forward. And um, yeah, we want to talk about a way forward. So, in all of the information that we've gathered from the community over four town halls, over many comments um, made at um, made on Facebook or through uh, messages to various um, members of CHAG, over the course of the 400 comments that we've gathered from um, the petition, um, of which over 2,000 people signed, but we you know we got comments from people who signed it digitally, um, and we've noticed a few themes. So, the community is asking. Very clearly, for a solution that asks for has specific characteristics. People are asking for a solution that is local. People are asking for a solution that includes leadership that has integrity, exhibits transparency and communication. And what's interesting is that in a quarter of the comments that we got in response to the petition, asking you know what are the questions that you have, of um, you know for if you would have for leadership at the hospital. A quarter of those comments were not just about, you know, what asking asking leadership what your goals for their goals for the community are, or um, but questions about how to achieve certain things, how to achieve financial stability, how to bring back providers. Um, it's very clear that people are as- asking questions that um, they need answers to, and to this date, we have not heard any answers to those questions. So we believe um, that after 18 months of um, leadership, that significant course correction is needed, that the current management company that is managing the hospital um, does not appear to have the capacity to fulfill the needs of the community and to answer the questions that the community is asking. And so we are here today to um, start talking about a solution that will replace that. What we have noticed is that there are many untapped opportunities to improve the health of the region and um, by tapping into the local mission aligned people who are here in the community. The structure that, the management, the organizational structure that we propose will take advantage of our region's uncommon strength of human capital. So with a core of dedicated providers, nurses and support staff who will serve our unique community through very challenging times. I will remind you that when we were looking for answers to why so many of our providers, why so many physicians, nurses and other staff were leaving the hospital, We did a survey and we got responses from current and former employees of RMCH. And what was remarkable is of all the former employees who left, we asked them, are you still here in the community? And 70% of them said yes. And we asked all the current employees, what's your attachment to this community? Over 80% of them said, I've been here in the community for more than five years, or I haven't been in the community that long, but I have every intention of staying. And then we asked all the former employees are you willing to come back to work for RMCH? And they, 66% of them said yes. And when we we had a free text um, response and asked them, what is it that would bring you back to the hospital? And the strong answer from the majority of respondents was to say, we need a change in leadership. So that's what you're here to present you with today. I want to introduce you to, um, to our speakers. So, um, you know, I, w- I will be here to help moderate, to answer some questions. So I'm Dr. Connie Liu, I'm a OBGYN um, in the community, and um, I've been working with CHAG for quite some time, and I'm um, interested in working with all of you and with the physician community, the provider community, to find a solution. And we invited here today someone that many of you may know. This is Dr. Butch Anderson. So Dr. Anderson has lived in the community for several decades. He has over 46 years of experience as a medical provider. He's an educator and a curriculum designer. He's held senior positions in the Department of Defense, the U.S. Army, and with the Indian Health Service. Some of you remember him from his tenure at RMCH when he was the director of the ED there. Some of you remember him from GIMC where he was director of the ED there. He has um, developed and coordinated complex medical services across several jurisdictions in his role at both of these hospitals and, and, and administration. And I will point out as well that he also brings extensive experience in project development and is skilled in resource recruitment team building, has a strong background in community health improvement and global health. And the reason why his expertise is so particularly needed in this particular situation is because he has experience in building health systems basically from scratch. In resource-constrained environments, including war-torn regions. So we certainly are we, I would say that this is um, certainly a scenario where we are experiencing some resource constraints, and, de- and definitely need to prioritize things in a way to turn things around quickly. I will also say, before I turn it over to Dr. Anderson, that we have one other person in the audience that we um, are happy to have here today, and some of you rem- may remember him from prior town halls. but we have Dr. Tim Putnam here in the audience. Um, so Dr. Putnam is um, a former president and CEO of um, an organization, a critical access hospital that in rural Indiana, Batesville, Indiana,' called Margaret Mary Health. He was there for over twelve years and um, and that hospital is a five star hospital, has a variety of different, um, has a variety of different services, um, supports medical education, and is the sort of hospital that we want to be reaching forward towards. Dr. Putnam has 30 years of health care experience. He has a doctorate in health administration from the Medical University of South Carolina, and his dissertation focused on acute stroke care hospitals. He is currently the chair of the National Rural Health Association's Policy Congress, and he's actually here in town because the National Rural Health Association is having their conference in Albuquerque, and he kindly agreed to make a little side trip over here to Gallup. Um, Dr. Putnam is also certified as an emergency medical technician and served as an EMT during his tenure as a CEO, and um, most recently and is currently still serving on President Biden's Committee on COVID-19 Healthcare Equity, and is preparing right now to release a report, um, some of which will relate to strengthening rural healthcare systems. So he's here also to provide his perspective and his um, expertise as it might apply to our local situation. So, but I want to turn, so what we will do is I'll turn it over to Dr. Anderson, and he will describe sort of the operational um, philosophy behind the solution that several um, providers in the community are putting together, and then we will turn it to the audience because, you know, the, the way we sort of want to do this is we want to hear from the community. A list of questions that I gleaned that are um, from the, the um, responses to the petition, you know, the questions was what questions do you have for um, for the hospital leadership and but we also want to hear from you today because we're primarily here to listen because we think that the solution really needs to involve the community and we want to make sure that we are aligned with you so anyway um, and so I will turn it over dr to dr. Anderson
1: Thanks Connie it's really an honor to be here um, and this is certainly a critical uh, critical issue um, as somebody who I'll share a little bit. Uh, as somebody who had an upper gastrointestinal bleed a few years ago and had a systolic blood pressure of 80, we drove right past RMCH. Ruth drove me right. My... Oh, happy Mother's Day to my wife, Ruth, who's up here in the front. Uh, a former RN at uh, RMCH and also at GIMC where she was the hantavirus nurse. Uh, she drove me right past RMCH and took me to Albuquerque where I got my care. Um, I'm, I have mixed feelings about that because I feel like I should support the general, the local hospital, critically important. But on the other hand, they didn't have the services that I knew I needed. So uh, with an active bleed going on and in a hemorrhagic shock, I actually made the decision that I would rather take my chances going over to Albuquerque, getting that done. And I I, I know there are a lot of stories like that here, and and that's really bothersome to me. Uh, The providers at at Rehoboth, uh, those who provide the services that we do have, uh, tend to be outstanding. Um, My wife, if I can, if you'll allow me to tell the story, was in the ICU uh, with pneumonia at the end of last year, and they spared no effort to take outstanding care of her. I was a little nervous about it when she went in, frankly, given my own history with RMCH. Um, but uh, they took outstanding care of her and they arranged for follow-up elsewhere where she got definitive care that she needed. And, and that's really, when you're living in a rural community like uh, Gallup and McKinley County and in this area on both sides of the, of the state border, that's really what you need is a, a, a hospital a healthcare institution, a healthcare facility, a healthcare system that can take care of probably 80%, 85% of your healthcare needs and will have excellent referral patterns and ways to get you where you need to go for the 15 or so percent that can't be done here and have continuing relationships between between here and the referral centers and so that the patient sees basically a seamless experience. Sometimes it's difficult to live in this area, I know. And uh, uh, it has become apparent to me that without a hospital, and I think that possibility exists, that without a hospital Gallup will look like one of those, you know, ghost towns in the Western movies where you've got the tumbleweeds blowing down the street and a dog peeing on an old rusted fire hydrant or something. But, but uh, businesses can't be attracted here. People will exit. It'll become a, it'll become a ghost town without a, a viable hospital. Um, when I came back from the Defense Department in 2014, when Ruth and I came back from the Defense Department, We went back out to our house in VanderWagen, and and I just did the hermit, the the hermit veteran with PTSD thing. And I was like, no, I'm gonna stay out there, everything's fine. But, you know, life happens, and you have to to get healthcare, you have to be a part of the community. And I think that's just extremely important, not just for us as individuals, but it's also extremely important for the hospital. And that's what's been missing is the hospital has not, as far as I'm concerned, been a part of the community. It's had outside leadership since I've been here, since 2014, it's had outside leadership in a series of CEOs. Uh, I'm not prepared to speak to how things have gone under those CEOs because honestly, I did stay out there in VanderWagen. I tried not to know about it, but the time has come when we all have to step up and we all have to do what, I, what we can to make sure that RMCH or at least a healthcare system survives in this community because without the healthcare system, the community will not survive and that's not good. So uh, I've had just very brief talks with Connie uh, about uh, what's been considered here and, and one of the most interesting propositions is what's called a a management services organization. And these are typically organizations that run, say, uh, group practices, for example. Um, So the providers and the staff of the group practice can concentrate on their work. They can concentrate on patient care. And the management services organization, the MSO, takes care of the business end of it. That's a fairly attractive proposition here, I think. It hasn't been fleshed out, so um, although I think uh, when we're done talking about, about this situation, we'd be glad to answer questions on that. I think we're not prepared to get deeply into the weeds about it. But the idea would be that a, uh, an LLC or a corporation that's composed of local people, uh, local providers, local staff, would form a management group that would actually run the hospital. Uh, that doesn't mean that the this MSO couldn't bring in outside people, but everything would be local oriented. So, what would the priorities be? The priorities would be, first of course, the patients. The patients always have to come first. And, Frankly, I left one job here in town, it was a nice job, but I left it when a patient of mine from when I was at the Northside Clinic, the old, now it's the Presbyterian Clinic, but it used to be the Northside Clinic. A patient of mine from there followed me to this other clinic here that was private, for profit, and she brought in her young child who was, I think, three years old, who was complaining of an earache and she didn't have the cash with her, or her Medicaid card, so she was turned away. And I made my plans to move on from, from that organization at that time. And, and what I'm saying is that we can't tolerate an organization that won't take care of patients, regardless of the patient's ability to pay. On the other hand, of course, the, the, no hospital, no healthcare organization is going to run by magic money that falls out of the sky. So we have to be very cognizant of, of, the, uh, of those economic issues. And they've gotten more and more complicated as healthcare care has become more and more complicated. So we'll be needing professional help on that. Nevertheless, my point is that, that the, the first responsibility of this organization will be to the, to the patients. And the, the second responsibility will be to the community. You know what? I'm going to take my mask off. I just got back from a one week medical conference where nobody was masked in North Carolina. I tested myself about two hours ago for COVID and I'm negative, so I won't spew any COVID on you. I'll talk softly. Um, The the community, as I mentioned earlier, what's been missing has been community involvement. The community involvement has always been self-serving and I think we need to move past that. And the hospital and the healthcare system need to be integrated into the community. It's a huge economic engine for the community. It's an enabler for the community. And again, without the hospital, we've got the tumbleweeds going down Main Street. Um, the the community will benefit from the people who are recruited to work at the hospital, from people who are retained. To live in the community for the rest of their lives, who will raise children here, who will be involved in the school system, all of these all of these come together. And one of the important points of nexus is the hospital, and it's a community hospital. And then the the third, uh, if you will, the third tier, or the third priority will be the uh, providers and the other staff at the hospital. So the only way that you can have a hospital that the patients are proud of and the community is proud of is to have a hospital that the staff are proud of. And, you know, I've heard stories. We've all heard stories probably why you're here. It's why I'm here. Again, my wife and I are patients there. My grandson, good Lord, he's a patient there all the time um, since he likes motorcycles and stuff. Um, You know, it's, it's just an it's all integrated vertically and it's integrated horizontally and that's the way it has to be. So I, I just wanted to end by saying we have a sense of where we want to go with this. Personally I'm, I'm going to serve as a consultant. Uh, I'm not going to charge any money for it because it's important to me. So uh, there's a, a great sense of volunteerism in this community and a sense of can-do. It's uh, what the uh, most patriotic community in the known universe. So, you know, we're going to capitalize on that, and we're going to get this done.
0: So I think, I think a lot of you will probably have some fairly specific questions, and so formulate those in your head, um, and please, like, you know, come up to the microphone if you would like to ask your questions. Um, I will just start us off by asking um, one question. So, Dr. Anderson, you've, you've worked frequently in situations that are distressed. I think I remember you telling me that you you were, played a very large role in the formation of the Iraqi health system after Desert Storm. So clearly, you've worked in distressed situations and um, you know places where you needed to turn things around quickly. So I guess um, you know one of the questions that one of the themes that came up in the questions. Um, that people have been asking is how do we work in a situation where we need to quickly work on making a distressed organization financially sound? Um, I would love to hear, you know, what, what would your thoughts be about that? What would be a general approach that you think that um, we should yeah. engage? Mm-hmm.
1: At GIMC, uh, we had to bounce back and forth. Um, You've mentioned a rock desert storm actually. Operation Iraqi Rocky Freedom. Oh, sorry. So was, yeah. <laughs> it's okay, 2003. Um, at GIMC, we had to pivot, and you're as familiar with this as anybody, but we had to pivot fairly quickly from doing routine outpatient services to, oh, my God, the sky has fallen. We've got to do this huge inpatient stuff, and we have to... Unfortunately, we have to put some of these less critical outpatient things aside, and what that... Re- what the way we went about that was to construct what the military uses as a risk matrix. And in a risk matrix, you put like this. And in this quadrant, you can put down services that are um, uh, that, that patients absolutely require. And in this one, you can put services patients don't necessarily require you know, the, emergency, the, the non-emergency services, some routine outpatient services down in this quadrant. We put treatment of acne in teenagers. You know, the teenagers probably thought that ought to be up here, but um, having been an acne teenager myself. But, you know, you put that down there. And you can, anyway, the point being that you can choose uh, what's important to you, and you can prioritize different services by that, um, in that framework. And... Uh, Uh, Tim was saying earlier that the services, I was concerned that, you know, probably the most important thing to have here in terms of patient care is emergency services. You know, even if you have only an emergency department, a giant emergency department that flies everybody out, at least you're saving lives. And Tim pointed out that emergency departments uh, pay their bills too. So... There's a win-win. It's, you know, it's financially appropriate and it's appropriate in terms of, of uh, the service that the patients require. Another one is surgical services and then you have your imaging and laboratory and things like that. So there are ways to prioritize these services. One of the services that I thought about, one I thought about that uh, Tim didn't like was, was hyperbaric because of all of the diabetes problems we have here with skin ulcers and things like that. But, but one that um, uh, he thought could be remunerative and I think is critical to this area is population health and preventive services. And the, the reason is because we don't want to see sick people. We want to see healthy people, and you know there are plenty of healthcare systems in the world where the the doctor, in quotes, gets paid for keeping the patient well, and uh, I think we're moving more and more to that uh, with capitated systems. And I, I'm not a I'm a health anthropologist, but but uh, I'm more interested in how other cultures do things, not ours. So. My point is that if we can provide preventive services for diabetes, for hypertension, for alcohol, for uh, substance abuse or substance use disorder, for all these kinds of things, uh, it's something that we need to do. We need to be preemptive in doing it. We need to do these things before they become hospitalizable illness. Tim says you can get paid for it. So it's a win-win. So we need to look at these kinds of things. We need to, I used to have a, when I was at Fort Bragg with Special Forces, my, my boss was another colonel. I was a colonel and he was a colonel. And he used to say you have to know what's inside the box before you can look outside the box. And so I think we have to do that. We have to uh, do a really careful assessment of what resources are available. We have to know what pays and we have to know what people need. And and where we have the intersection between what people need and what pays, that's the way to get the hospital on its feet Mm -hmm. financially. And Mm -hmm. I'm only speaking about the financial part, but that's the way to do it.
0: So essentially taking all the services, triaging them appropriately to do the things that are the most important to the patients and compensate the best. I know that in our conversations we've talked about how GI services, for example, uh, just thinking about your example of having a GI bleed, so that's a particular service that we don't have here at our hospital. So every one of those 300 or so patients who end up in the hospital with a GI bleed need to be transported out. So part of it would be probably finding those service lines that
1: Yeah, and, are and actually there, as, yeah. as part of uh, what I'm doing at, at GIMC, I asked uh, the emergency department to keep track of every, every specialty that they transferred to. So I can tell you that cardiology is high on the list. Gastroenterology is very high on the list. Now, should those patients that GIMC is referring to Albuquerque, should they continue going to Albuquerque, or should they drive across the street to RMCH for their care? And I think the answer is obvious. It's better for the patients. A number of our elderly Navajo patients don't like to leave their home. They don't like to go away from home. There are problems with interpreters. There are other kinds of problems. There are some spiritual issues about leaving the Four Sacred Mountains, Denebekeia. Uh We saw a lot of this during the uh, during the COVID pandemic when we were transferring people as far as Kansas and Tucson and, and places like that. And But it pertains to Albuquerque and Ruth and I have a granddaughter who works in the uh, cardiac care unit in Albuquerque and she told us about the care that um, our native patients get there. And, you know, it's they get good quality care, but it's not, I'm not casting aspersions on the hospitals in Albuquerque. They work with what they have to work with. But it's not the person-to-person care that they would get if they had a Navajo person taking care of them or if their family were in the room with them. We all know that.
0: I think it's interesting you bring that up because the community health, um, the community uh, health survey that has to be performed for RMCH every three years, one of the points in the implementation plan that from 2020 or 2020 to 2023 really focused on relationships between um, the hospital and other entities within the community, and I would say that you know if just thinking about a hospital that a management organization that has buy-in from all the local providers. We know that all the local providers here have personal connections to, these, um, to GIMC, to Zuni Hospital. And so it just seems that we would be, that, you know, in order to bring in revenue, strengthening those relationships and increasing those transfers um, would be a way to increase revenue.
1: Yeah, when I was, when I was emergency medicine, uh, chief of emergency medicine at, at RMCH, um, I used to say that our competition was GIMC, and we should be fighting to get Navajo patients at RMCH, getting them covered by Medicare, Medicaid where they're not, or other insurance. And we should make sure that RMCH is um, culturally appropriate and culturally competent. And uh, that, that that was a huge need that wasn't being met and when I became Chief of Emergency Medicine at GIMC, I was saying that our competition was RMCH, and we should be doing everything we can to get the Navajo patients from RMCH to come over to GIMC, and we needed to be culturally appropriate, and we needed to be culturally competent. So the the reality is, of course, that there's a middle road, and both institutions can sort of march forward into the future, and there's no reason in my mind, when I first came here with National Health Services Corps in 1983, one of the first things I did as a federal employee was apply for privileges at GIMC. And they were like, yeah, we'll get back with you on that. And uh, six months later, I asked about it, and they said, well, we don't have any way to do that. And th- that's, since then, it's actually happened that there have been arrangements, Dr. Early was telling me, I remember Dr. Tempest and Dr. Irilu used to have admitting privileges at RMCH. I'm not aware of any RMCH docs who had admitting privileges at GIMC. I don't see why it couldn't be done. But um, there there are, are always people who will tell you no, something can't be done. And my career has been kind of figuring out how to either go over or around those people and show them that it actually can be done. So that's what we need to do.
0: I am Actually, I hope that I can pick on Dr. Putnam just briefly because, um, you know, I think it would be also good to know just from your perspective, like if you were, you know, looking in a situation where you had a distressed hospital, you know, what, what would be the first priority you think for, um, for a distressed hospital?
2: One of the things is about community engagement. How do you provide what the community needs? And it's a real careful evaluation of that. What, what is it? That's important um, to the community, and what makes sense. There's a whole laundry list of different programs and and federal things that that you can look at. So it's twofold: what is the community needing? Uh, that, I think that's that's one of the, the things that's most important. And then what is out there, from a financial standpoint, that the federal government or state government pays or encourages hospitals to do that you can tap into. Uh, an analogy I often use, now this is a Midwestern guy, so I'm used to farmers, corn and soybeans, that's our thing. Um, and you realize that a lot of family farms went out of business in the 80s. And what happened was, and a lot of the guys I talked to that are still in business, it's, is, they told me it's, sometimes it's not about farming. It's not about putting seeds in the ground and getting seeds out. It's about adapting to whatever government programs out there and sometimes you just have to do that and that's that's one of the things that I've I've talked to people here about that 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 I and several others across the country that want to see the hospital succeed and want to see it serve the community what resources can we bring to be able to to tap into government funds and things like that cuz a lot of this stuff is financial you just have to meet the financial goals in order to pay the staff and be ready for when that cardiac or that that, that gastric bleed or whatever comes in the door. And you've got to be able to, to fund it to do that. And it, healthcare care, if anybody's ever paid a hospital bill in their life, it, it, trust me, on the hospital side, it's just as complex, and it's hard, and it's a mess, and it's a, a system that none of us want, but we all have to live in. And getting that to be right and getting it to be... Effective is really important, and you know, and there's a lot that goes with that. Getting, making sure people have the right coverage, and helping them do that. So there's a lot. There's a hundred little steps that need to be done, um, one at a time, and it takes a lot of work to get that done.
0: Yeah, I remember you saying that. You know, one of the things that you um, there, you know, that several there are people who have expertise is, is essentially doing forensic analysis when you come into a distressed institution. So I think the way you framed it was, and correct me if I'm wrong, no. is that like immediately when you look that there's usually some kind of low-hanging fruit. Yeah, yeah.
2: yeah generally there are. Generally there are things out there that, that what's really going on. And, 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 that, and this is where that local balance versus someone that knows nationally what the resources are. You, you've got to have some local leadership that's trusted. And some of you may not have been born in the area. But you've come here and you've made it your home. You've invested in it. So, if, so I'm not saying someone has to be third generation in the community to be in the leadership of the hospital, but they need, to, they need to see this as their home, and they need to care for their friends and neighbors. But also on the other side is tap into what resources that are out there. The federal government does not want to see community hospitals close, specifically ones that are in areas where this entire region and everybody that drives up and down the highway in the interstate would not have access to care if this facility wasn't here. Nobody in the state wants to see it closed. Nobody in the federal government wants to see it closed, but they're going to lean on local people to be able to make sure to do the right things to keep it open. So there are some resources. There are some low-hanging fruits. There's 20 or 30 different programs. Some of them may be right for this hospital. Some of them may not be. But that's part of the analysis of of what can happen.
0: I will shift gears a little bit to ask, um, because Dr. Anderson, I know that your experience, you have a lot of experience in team building, and um, you know, uh, in team building. So one of the questions that we get repeatedly is, you know, what we can do to retain and recruit high-quality employees.
1: It's a really complicated question. Um, I was really successful at GIMC. In recruiting, uh, uh, recruiting providers uh, to work there in an environment that was thought by a lot of people to not be a real desirable environment. There are people who have prejudices about Gallup um, and, uh, you know, the, the truck drivers, if I remember right, used to call it drunk town. And there are certain obstacles to overcome there, uh, but there are also uh, some really wonderful things about town. And, and one of the things that's wonderful is the sense of community. Again, uh, you know, America's most patriotic town. Uh, there are lots of things to do outside Gallup and to do uh, in the Four Corners region. So those obviously come into play. You have to. You have to. Offer a competitive salary. It doesn't have to be uh, the largest salary in the world. You don't have to outbid everybody else, but you have to offer a competitive salary. But I think what you really have to do is you have to make people feel like they belong. And the only way you can make them feel like they belong is to ensure that they actually, in fact, do belong. You can't make people feel like they belong unless they really do. And that's something that I think... Uh, leadership here and leadership a lot of places tends to overlook is uh, we're all in this together Um, everybody every provider I know wants to be proud of what they do and they want to know that they have the resources to do what they need to do they want to ensure that their patients can get the care that they need and I think those are, are like the basic things that need to be done to to create a team. And then you have to have, you have to understand that you have loyalty. So when my public health team went out to the Ministry of Health in Iraq, for example, <clears throat> I, I knew that my, you know, we were a very diverse group. Uh, about a third of my team were Puerto Rican, so they were, nominally from a different culture than I am. Um, About a third were Iraqi, who, uh, you know, we just basically said, okay, you're gonna be our interpreter, and then they could have turned us in at any time for, the Iranians would have paid huge money for a, you know, six colonels, six American colonels. Now, we we had confidence in them, and we were loyal to them, they were loyal to us. All of my interpreters are now in the United States. One works for the State Department, has a top secret clearance, as a regional medical officer for the State Department in the Middle East. Another one is works for the State Department in, get this, weapons of mass destruction, with the top secret clearance. Another one, who is a general in, in the Iraqi army, uh, works for the Defense Department in weapons of mass destruction, again, top secret clearance, and there's another one who works for the National Institutes of Health, pharmaco pharmacoeconomist. So we carried through on our loyalty to them. And I think that's what kept us from getting killed. That's probably what keeps you from getting killed in business too. Um, and uh, uh, the, other, the other group were people from all over, the, all over the US. So we still keep in touch with each other uh, on the anniversary of our ambush 19 years later. So, the loyalty goes a long way toward uh, building a cohesive team, and a team where I think if the healthcare team members trust each other, and they trust their administration, and they trust their support services, then I think the patients will feel justified in trusting the healthcare team.
0: Um, two things sort of strike me when you tell this story, which is you know you talk about this like very strong network of people who you went through a very stressful time as and with, and you have this loyalty. And I think, you know, I mean, as medical physicians, like, you know, residency and training is um, not not quite as stressful as that situation, but still like engenders that level of loyalty and trust. And so I think about, you know, um, Gwen Wilson is one of the PAs who retired from um, Rehoboth, and she was telling us earlier today how, you know, um, two of the physicians who are well-known in our community um, are from the Philippines, and they came here to serve the community and have been here for a number of years. But she, you know, talked about how there was a time when they brought in um, an oncologist, they brought in a cardiologist, they brought in people who they trusted and knew through their networks and attracted them to work here. Because and so at some point, she said that she was the only person in her office that didn't speak Tagalog. But we still see the pattern today. I think you know, so a number of the family medicine physicians who work here. Um, at RMCH are from Contra Costa, which is one of the family medicine residents, and the reason that they're all here is purely on the strength of that network. So I think we're on. To, you know, I think that the plan that we are developing, which builds in buy-in for the number of people in the community, not only gives them control over the strategic direction of a management team, and also gives them some faith that it's going in the direction that you know that's going in a um, direction that is mission-aligned and um, mission oriented and serves the community but it also gives them some buy-in to reach out to their networks and to attract them to a vision of care that many people went to into medicine to achieve.
1: yeah the value of networks and networking can't there's no way to overstress it um, and in in fact uh, people talk to their residency programs they talk to their residency directors they talked to people they went to medical school with. They talked to family who are also in healthcare. And, and uh, that may be a lot more powerful than putting an ad in Journal of the American Medical Association or something. And we do see that here in Gallup. We'll see uh, clusters of people who are from Massachusetts General or from University of California, San mm-hmm. Francisco, stuff like that. And, and you know, it's, it's uh, the word does get around and uh, that there needs to be a way to, to, I don't like to use the word leverage because everybody uses the word leverage for everything, but there has to be a way to leverage networks to be able to get the sub, the specialists and the subspecialists here. And also nurses and, and RTs and respiratory therapists and other professionals.
2: I'll, I'll, I'll add the professional administrator piece in here. Um, there's a couple of things that are big on that. You, you want physicians and nurses here that care about the patients, not are willing to come for a salary. So the thing in leadership we're supposed to do is eliminate the barriers and make sure the providers have what they need to provide the care for the patients. And that's really the job of management. Now the one thing that as we engage community is that they'll all wanna come here for something sort of special because they've got a thousand different places to choose from. So if you can do that from a leadership standpoint and the peers say this is a good place to practice medicine, they allow you to focus on the patients. That's a big deal. The other thing is how to differentiate your community from every other one. I I had friends of mine that were in Nashville and everyone on their medical staff was just practicing medicine until they could break into country music. And and that was their thing. So they're like, okay, what is special about us, and what can we as a community do to make physicians from the Philippines or from Massachusetts come in and feel comfortable? Because they're here for a reason. Do they want to understand Native culture like no place else in the world? Do they want to be able to take advantage of all the things that are going on in in the natural world around us that you can't get anyplace else? And how do we reach out to the community to make them feel welcomed, and feel at home when they start here. That, that, that's that bond um, that really has to happen because I believe it's not just having good physicians and good nurses. It's having them committed to being here for the, their, their careers. And that's where you build that trust. And and you you raise the kids in the community to be like this physician or this physician or this nurse, and you can be that too. And that's where you get that momentum. It takes a long time to build. Trust is not built in a day, but you've got to start moving forward and have that to look forward to. So, I'll jump off the pulpit now and give it back to you.
0: (laughs) I will just add one more thing is that, um, you know, we've been having conversations with various, um, you know, potential partners and um, we did reach out to a partner in Albuquerque. It's a nurse staffing solutions. They bring in permanent, um, nurses who intend to be permanent employees um, to different areas and from uh, primarily from Canada, but um, you know in discussing the vision of like a locally run um, you know locally um, You know a, a solution that has um, local buy-in and the way that we you know the way that we're sort of envisioning um, she, The nurse that I, or the person who runs the staffing solutions, you know was definitely interested in. She said if you can sell me a vision of um, a locally oriented solution the way that you've sold it to me then that's something that I can recruit. The strength of that pitch alone, I can definitely recruit permanent nurses into the community. So, I think we, um, so again, I think we're on to something here. Um, I do sort of want to move over to the accountability piece because this is something that, again, came up repeatedly in so many different um, forums that people want um, leadership that is accountable. And I think some of the common complaints that we've heard is that you know, people will show up for town hall, or show up to board meetings. They'll submit comments, or they will ask questions, and many of the answers to those questions were not just not forthcoming. So people wanted to know how to, you know, what does transparent leadership look like for a hospital, and how can we have a solution that keeps accountable to the community and to patients, and to providers, frankly, to list the three constituents, Dr. Anderson, that you listed out in the beginning. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts about this.
1: Well, I, I spent, uh, as I said, I spent last week at a, at a medical uh, education meeting. And, and when I was getting ready for this meeting, I realized I, I, don't have, I don't have all the answers that I wish I had. And I've always said that if you, if you understand the questions, usually the answers are just apparent by themselves. Um... So what that means to me is that I, I don't understand the questions, and the reason I don't understand the questions is because I don't have any information to formulate questions from. And in, uh, in 1989, when I was Chief of Emergency Medicine at RMCH, um, the mill levy came up for a vote, and I wrote a letter to the editor. I didn't sign my name as anything to do with RMCH, I don't even know if I put M.D. after my name. But I sent this letter to the Gallup Independent, and I said, uh, RMCH is essential to the well-being of our community, and the people of the community require having RMCH here. So the people should vote in favor of the mill levy. And in return for the mill levy, the county should get a seat on the board. And the next morning, I was on my way into work to my usual ER shift. And one of my docs called me up and said, Hey, uh, I got called in. The administration called me into work today. And I know that you were scheduled to work. So I don't know why they called me into work. But I'm guessing it has something to do with that letter to the editor. Yeah. I was called on my way into work next by somebody in administration. Who said you don't need to bother to come in to work today? You know we're not going to be requiring your services anymore. And uh, I was—I have to say—I was pretty upset because I didn't think that was a particularly egregious request that the county, which is, you know, has the lease on the hospital and has, is paying mill levy money, uh, should have some important say. I didn't even suggest it would be a a majority on the board. I just said a seat on the board for awareness. For awareness. That got me fired. I I have to say, I was pretty upset about it. And I said, you know, my contract still runs for two more months. And uh, they said, oh, we're gonna buy out your contract. I said, so I don't have to come in to work anymore and you're gonna pay me? They said, yeah, I said, have a nice day. And I went to San Juan Regional and started working the next week. But um, my point being that there, at that time, there was obviously a huge penalty for speaking your mind and for advocating for transparency. Honestly, I haven't seen much of that change over the the decades since
0: 1989. So I think, I mean, you know, I think that this reflects back to a lot of what many people in the community have said, which is that so many of these issues like stem back, you know, decades back. And I think here, like, you know, we actually have a really unique opportunity. We are at this critical point in time where we have a really engaged community. We have a very strong cohort of people who have come to this community to be healthcare providers and who are here to serve, who are mission aligned, meaning that they are here to serve the community, that they think about patients and prioritize their care and think about their safety and well-being. And so it seems to me that, you know, with, our, with the plan that we are de- we've developed, that we are building in that accountability permanently going forward so that when people have opinions or try to be stewards for the hospital like you tried to do so many years ago, that that isn't something that is punished, but something that we see as a value. So I don't know. That's, that's just sort of my reflection on that. And you have to realize
2: health care is a passionate area. Those of you that work in healthcare, those of you that experienced it, it's tough. I mean, it, there's a lot of heartbreaking things that go on. People, people care about it. The largest cause of bankruptcy in this country for personal bankruptcy is healthcare bills. So not only does it financially crush some people, but you know, you went to the hospital and it didn't, and the outcome wasn't what you wanted it to be. And leadership has to deal with that on a regular basis. It's it's a hard, hard job. Um, but you gotta face it, you gotta do it. It's important work, but it needs to be done. And you gotta hear that angry voice of the patient that's very upset about the bill. You have gotta hear that angry voice about the, the person whose mother died in 75 at the hospital and will never go back, you know, and, and no matter how good the care is, the patients are mortal, and you can't... So it's a very passionate area, and leaders have to be willing to be able to step up and take the, take the abuse. Um, it's, not, it's not easy, and I can understand you don't want to do that on a daily basis, but having the conversation, listening to the complaints, listening to the concerns, and trying to figure out ways to solve them and be better the next time is what you need to do. Um, and that that's got to be part of it so the community has to feel free that they can stand up and have a voice and they have to be able to know you and and it's so frustrating because sometimes as an administrator you don't have the answer you don't have that but hearing that voice makes you come up with a better solution or improve the care the next patient receives. And I think that's really important and I, I'll encourage you to have that voice and I know you got a list of questions to go through but it, I think that's important to hear what the concerns are and, and what you are most passionate about.
1: Yeah, thanks. Um, and I would just add, uh, sort of piling onto that, that uh, maybe I'm naive but you know, Gallup has some outstanding talent, and there was a there was a thing on the internet once. Of course, the internet's always right, that said that Gallup had more millionaires per capita than any other any other community in the in the United States. I tracked it down, and it's not true, but it's darn near true. And uh, <laughs> uh, per capita, um, there are people who are in business here. You know, in Indian jewelry business. There are people who are are are. Uh, in the tourism business, there are people who are in ranching. There are people who are in multiple different businesses, all of which have their own regulations, their own laws, their own uh, uh, their own uh, clientele, their own type of clientele, so forth and so on. But the important thing is that it seems to me that there's a huge amount of talent here and knowledge that could be used by a hospital. In, in this particular case, a, a management services organization, so that when things are difficult, y- even though as Tim says, uh, well he didn't actually say this, so I'll say it for him, that healthcare is pretty close to being overregulated, and uh, you know you 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 can't step into the executive suite without almost having a law degree. Uh, there's so many people looking over your shoulder. Nevertheless that doesn't mean that some idea is not going to come out of left field if if your hospital clientele, if your hospital population knows what your problems are. I fully expect that people in this community will step up with suggestions to solve them. And 98% of those solutions aren't going to work, but that 2% that work are going to be critical.
0: I also wanted to ask this question because I think this is a particularly unique one for our area, just given the patient mix that we have. So 70% of the patients here um, are Medicaid, Medicare, five to 8% are private insurance, the rest are uninsured. We know that we survive, um, we, um, in this, as a medical community, we serve a broad range of um, other communities in the region. So the Zuni Pueblo, Navajo Nation, um, and other communities within McKinley County. So the question is, in what ways can we build a team structure, an organizational philosophy that ensures that the standard of care reflects equity needs, cultural values, and public health issues of such a diverse community. This is all you, Dr. Anderson, as the medical anthropologist and someone with so much experience in our community. You know,
1: interestingly, Medicare and Medicaid require cultural competency. But then, I don't think they do a very good job of telling us how to go about gaining it. and. Uh, A lot of it starts out as respect and curiosity, so the place I get into trouble is with curiosity because I ask people where they're from and the taxi driver didn't want to tell me because he's afraid that, you know, I'll think that because, well, in in the case two days ago, he didn't want to tell me he was Iranian, so I said, are you Persian? He said, yes, I'm Persian. Okay, fine. the, the important thing here is that we we have an, a large number of cultures in this community and that's, as actually as I was telling um, my Iraqi counterparts, the strength of America is, I firmly believe, and I think it's backed up by data, uh, the strength of America is in its cultures, the multiplicity of cultures that we have here. Because we get to borrow ideas from so many different places and we need to, and, and we're able to put those put those ideas into action and uh, there's actually a book there's a, an entire book written about that and how uh, the different cultures that have that were in America and that have come to America have have uh, the best ideas have strengthened our country uh, from the get-go. Um, Nevertheless, that doesn't mean that we can all sit down to dinner and not offend each other occasionally, and and even maybe even more so at the hospital bedside. So, I think we have to look at the uh, the the most significant cultures. I don't. I'm not sure "significant" is the word I want to say, but we have to have we have to ensure that we have cultural awareness when it comes to taking care of. Okay, I'm going to talk about Navajos, which, since I'm Ghana, that's going to get me into trouble immediately. But if you look at Navajo culture, it's kind of... I'm not sure there is a, Nav- a Navajo culture. What there is, is there are Navajos who have been to university. There are Navajos who are physicians. There are Navajos who are attorneys. There are Navajos who are engineers, there are Navajos who are making this country work, uh, who are involved in international business and trade, and then there are Navajos who are craftspeople, and there are Navajos who grew up on the reservation, and there are Navajos who grew up in the cities, and there are Navajos who, maybe even more Navajos, who grew up going in between both, and there are Navajos who grew up on the reservation and never learned English, and so they, Turn first to uh, native healing systems. And I think you have to understand what, I think you have to understand all of that if you're going to take care of Navajo patients. And I certainly hope that RMCH takes really good care of Navajo patients. But it's not something that you can learn from, you know, reading a pamphlet. You have to immerse yourself in the culture and in the area to know those things. And then it's the same with Hispanics. So, you know, there are people here who are documented, there are people here who are undocumented, there are people here, like I'm gonna use my wife as an example, there are people here like Ruth, whose family was here before the United States was here, um, and who were originally Native American, and then uh, her grandma was taken as a slave, and she grew up speaking Spanish. And her dad came across the border in what during the Columbus, during Pancho Villa's era, from Sonora, a Yaqui Indian. So th- this is a, a huge constellation, a huge jigsaw puzzles, huge jigsaw puzzle of cultures, and and it's a Herculean job to try to work appropriately within them all, but it's also fascinating, and I think it's a good way to recruit people here. I
0: do want to take a pause and see if any of the audience members have any particular questions, because we've been talking a lot about philosophy and organizational approach. But yes, Dr. Mezoff. One moment, I need a lot of microphones. Oh.
1: All right, you can come John Mezloff, Um Tell me a little bit more about this MCO. I mean, what's the difference between that and just having the hospital hire people and being employees?
0: Yeah, so that's a really great question. So the broad outlines of this particular management service organization is that our intention is that it will be provider run, it will be provider owned, and provider led. So that means that the organization will have buy-in from local providers, which provides the accountability because these are people who by having buy-in and being by their nature, members of the community who have a stake in the, way the, in the health of the hospital, whether or not they work there, they will, be making the strate- making, man- they will be involved in strategic decision-making and in the direction of the hospital. The second point for an or- the management service organization is that it's provider run. So that means that key leadership positions will be um, will involve uh, physician or provider leadership, and the reason why we, we the reason for that is because, as you you know, as we've talked about, we know that the providers in this community are inherent are inherently aligned with the goals of the community, and we know that they have the best interests of the um, patients in mind. And we already, and these are, we leaders who we believe inherently hold the trust of community members. So if there's something that, um, you know, that Dr. Putnam has, you know, said repeatedly. You can train somebody to be a CEO. Those are skills that you can learn. But you can't teach somebody how to gain the trust of the community. So we want to start with local leadership that has the trust of the community. And from there, we can build in the appropriate supports that we need in order to make the hospital run in a financial and sound, financially sound way. We also think that this is an advantageous um, advantageous structure because providers and other people who work at the hospital are inherently closely involved in understanding what sorts of changes need to occur in order to create a system or and create quality improvement processes, and in order to create a culture of safety and quality, which has been sorely lacking at the hospital. So we believe that this is the best way and the quickest way for people to be involved in those processes and to bring about quick change to the hospital, Um, you know, to bring about programs like Dr. Anderson talks about, diabetes programs, you know, programs for addiction, like the things that people see on the ground that patients immediately need, and by by building that into the management structure, we can quickly find ways to make sure that those things are, that we can get those things paid for. And I think the last part is that by having a network of providers in the community who are determining the direction of this organization, these are people who can tap into the networks that we've been talking about, who can sell the vision of a locally locally run, um, you know, organization that cares about the health of the community and that is also interested in financial viability. I think this is a vision that we can easily sell, and we can ask the people who are stewards for that organization to sell that vision to people and, uh, and bring them here. And once those people ha- are here, they have buy-in as well, and will stay. So, is anyway, this sorry. where I can
2: talk about chili? Yes. Yeah, sorry. Is this where I can talk about chili?
0: Sure. Yes, you can talk about chili. I love it. Right. I've
2: been told that chili around here is not the way we make it in Indiana. Um, but the, the deal is there's an old saying you, if you've seen one rural hospital you've seen one rural hospital it doesn't lend itself to you know, being the same every place you have to take advantage of what you have locally and if what you have locally are good providers that care about the community care about the patients and want to be part of the solution that's what you take advantage of you put in chili what the best local ingredients are um, and I think that's, that's how you can look at this. I, I'm not encouraging you to try the chili that we've got in my area, but if you do, let me know and I'll get you to that.
0: Okay, can you hear me? Um, so my question is that this is a very much welcome fix to the problem in the community this MSO proposal as I'll call it just for shorthand and The next question or my question is how do we get the county to work with us for this? Absolutely essential 180 degree turnaround to save our hospital and save our community. Um, I can start with an answer, and then I'll let these two, or, well, I'll let Dr. Anderson in particular think about that. But um, I will say this. I believe that we have leaders who are definitely very aligned with the community. I think nobody wants to see the hospital fail. In fact, we want to see this hospital become a center of excellence and to work hand-in-hand with the community because, as everybody knows, and as Dr. Anderson said earlier, our community lives and dies by whether or not we have a viable hospital. I think it was at the last town hall meeting that um, uh, Umaro, um, Ampri, I think her name is. I'm so sorry if I butchered your name, but you um, she is the she um, runs um Cedar and Ivy, which is a real estate company. And she talked about how every single person who comes here and buys a home in this community brings sixty thousand dollars right into the community just from that purchase. And then she sees them thrive in the community, spending money here, sending their kids to school. She sees them become an integral part of the community and her concern is that she sees a lot of people coming through and they stay here only temporarily renting they're here from week to week they don't have the same buy in into the community and her concern too is also that she sees a lot of her clients reaching out to her cuz they're thinking of selling their homes they're retired they have families they need a working hospital and they're worried that they won't have that so you know it's it's very clear from like the from a ground level view that everybody is concerned and so we know that this is the concern of the county commissioners um, we will be reaching out to the commissioners to arrange a time to present a much more detailed plan for we're, what we're describing to you here today, um, and our hope is that you know we can help them to see the value of this because I think we all know that the value we really have here is the people. You know that's what the when we had our servant our um, employee survey at the hospital when people we asked people what's the best thing about working at RMCH what will keep you there. 100% of people said, it's, the, it's my fellow workers, it's the staff. And a very close second answer to that was, it's, my, it's the opportunity to serve my community. So we know that people here have that kind of spirit, and that's certainly something we need to take advantage of, because that's not something you can buy. You can't pay $5,000 a week for a nurse to come into the community and to have that same spirit. They may be excellent nurses, they may be very compassionate, but they won't have the same kind of buy-in, and that, that that's what we need to take advantage of. Sorry, anyway, so anyways, just showing them the value proposition of this plan. Yeah. I don't know, Dr. Anderson, if you have anything to add to that.
1: I would just say that uh, I don't know how to take it to the county, that's Connie's job, but um, when she does, I'll, I'll have her back, so we'll do that. You know, another thing, Seeing. <clears throat> John Mezoff speak is is that I think it's really important. Um, John, I'm, I think I'm same age you are, so no offense, no offense, uh, and Kathy. Um, but I think uh, as an anthropologist, I used to wonder what's the purpose of old people, and uh, the you know it, in uh, in in nature. Uh, the average lifespan in, the, in America was about 38 years old, except in the, on the coast, it was about 42 years old where people got higher quality protein. Nevertheless, 42 years old, a lot of us have passed that in our rearview mirror. Um, so uh, men are programmed to die from prostatic hypertrophy, if Chris is still here. Um, and uh, women are programmed to die from complications of osteoporosis. Or in childbirth, um, and they don't do that anymore. But but what was the purpose of having old people back in in those days before medicine? Because some people, the exceptional person, would live to be sixty, seventy, eighty, even older. And the purpose of old people is to say, and I'm sorry, it's not to ramble. The purpose of old people is to say, um, you know the you know the the rain hasn't come yet, and it's almost summer. You're going to have to take the sheep up into the mountains where there's more where there's more water because they're not going to make it down here. And that's the that's the purpose of having the occasional old person sitting around the campfire. And that's a long way of getting around to saying I think that we should look at having a board of emeritus providers and staff uh, who really understand the history and can contribute to it and can help with some of the problem solving
0: I completely agree with that and I, I will say too like you know we've been making some strides in in um, you know when you talk about like the calling on the wisdom of people within the community we certainly have so much respect for the wisdom of the people who've worked here for decades in this community and have seen the hospital you know through all of its various iterations so you know part of the management structure will involve having a board and so that's really where we will be calling upon people not only just to be um, you know providers who can buy into the organization and set that tone but also be you know also be watch, watch the direction the community from um, sorry the direction of the organization as board members as well. I will say that, you know, in, in terms of making this viable, like, you know, we've also been reaching out to various people. We've talked to about half of the, um, the physician staff at RMCH, and they have all verbally universally agreed that they would be willing to sign on to an MSO that has the sort of organizational, organizational philosophy and mission that we are proposing. And we've also talked to a number of physicians who are not don't work at RMCH within the community, and they are also universally supportive. We've talked to Dr. Terry Sloan, who you know many of you know is very well respected in this community, has worked for decades with the Indian Health Service organization, and has done his own level of turnarounds with the with them. And he's also agreed to be involved. He unfortunately couldn't be here today because um, he is out of town. Um, but you know those are the things that we're working on to um, bring this bring this. Um, idea to fruition and to make it a reality. Oh, um, Commissioner Jackson. I think you can all hear me now. Oh, no, well, we want to if it's me, okay. Take
2: advantage <laughs> of this.
3: We may have to spin the camera around. But,
0: uh, yeah. oh, is that possible?
3: First of all, Yate, thank you for inviting me here, and I'm happy to be here. I spent about 10 minutes at the Baptist Church on the Hill before I realized I was at the wrong place. Uh, I just want to reassure everybody. The county shares your dedication to the hospital. We are very much concerned also. But as with anything else, there are legalities. There's the legal side to all these things. And that's what we're working our way through. Mm-hmm. I'm from Fort Defiance, actually not Fort Defiance, but Sabanito, New Mexico. And we have utilized GIMC and also RMCH forever. We want you to stay. I don't want to see you leave or close up. And we have set aside Friday, this coming Friday, In five days, where we will be hearing from you again, Connie. What I would like to see myself is, instead of words on a paper, and you were very good at presenting that to us, what I would like to see is a diagram, a chart, exactly of where you see these positions at. I think that will make it very clear to everyone. And the meeting will be at 9 o'clock. Friday. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Commissioner Jackson. And we know that we definitely need to work hand-in-hand with all partners. It's not just working with everybody in the community, pulling together in the same boat. But we all have different pieces of information. What's that, you know, that old Saying about like you know you don't know the picture you don't know the how the whole elephant looks you know just what your piece of the elephant looks like when you're touching when you're touching it so we all need to get together I think to really make the solution work because all of us are touching different pieces of the solution and um, in order for it to steer in the same direction we need to pull together so Dr Held
2: I just have a question about what you mean by buy in how literal and how figurative are you using that term.
0: Um, we're using it fairly literally. I think that those are details that we still need to work out. So there are two different ways that you could, could think about the f- um, about being a shareholder within this organization. You know, the first is that, you know, everybody who's a shareholder has a responsibility, and we take that very seriously to ensure that the direction of the, co- of the, um, the organization is solid and follows the three principles that we've laid out earlier. Um, so that's the first thing. So second, you know, the second thing is the thought that, you know, those folks who are serving that role should have at least some nominal compensation for the time that they spend ensuring that the management organization runs to the benefit of the community. The third possibility is that we could actually use it as a fundraising mechanism. So we could look to physicians here in the community and in and surrounding communities as well, and anybody who you know has an interest in ensuring that our local community hospital survives, and and look to them um, as a fundraising mechanism. So we haven't worked out the details of that yet because that will depend on you know what other sources of funding we're able to raise. But um, but those are the three possibilities for. Or those are the possibilities. You know, either that the, the responsibility would be that we expect people who are shelters to be, to be um, stakeholders and to be stewards, good stewards. And then um, you know we could potentially look into that as a mechanism for fundraising. Sorry, I don't. <laughs> um, happy to answer any other questions, or we can. I can. Uh, other questions out. We're almost at five o'clock too, so I don't want to keep people here super long because we did say three thirty-five. But...
1: You can ask a question. Okay. Um, why don't you? Uh, mm-hmm. You showed me a question earlier. Yeah. Um, from somebody who said that they had called. Oh
0: yes. Yeah. Sorry. I can. I can. So I, um, there is um somebody who wasn't able to be here today, and she was. Um, very upset that we had, or, well, I don't know if she was upset, but she said she couldn't come because it, um, it's Mother's Day, which I totally understand. But her question was really a very simple one. She said, I'm a patient at um, RMCH, and I still have issues reaching college clinic, and my, I do not understand why somebody can't just pay two people $15 an hour to sit there at the phone and answer them. Um, so that, that was her question that she wanted to ask today and
1: we can use that as a jumping off point. Yeah, thanks. I'm, I'm not going to actually answer that question. I want to talk about the importance of that question. If if you are trying to reach your provider to get a prescription refilled or you need an appointment or you woke up that morning with aches and pains and a cough and a fever and uh, you don't know if you've got COVID or not or something else, influenza now is I think we had our first patient who was co-infected with influenza and COVID. So, you know, it's a new day. Um, Especially from the perspective of the pandemic, but just from daily life, you gotta be able to reach your healthcare facility. And I've heard this complaint from not just this person, but from other people that the phones are going unanswered. And uh, I, I don't have a solution for that because I don't know what the problem is. Um, but I know that it's an untenable situation, and that that's the kind of thing that should get the highest priority because people got to be able to reach their providers or the nurse or, you know, even billing or whoever. They have to be able to do it in a timely fashion. And, you know, sometimes their lives depend on it. Certainly their health depends on it and their well-being. So...
0: Yeah, I mean I think that, you know, two things come to mind. You sort of drew that picture of like, you know, how we think about revenue within an organization that serves a community. And so there are the things that are high priority for patients and there are things that are, you know, that pay well. And so it's like, you know, trying to understand that matrix. But the fact is that, you know, simple services, simple things like this, like, you know, the ability to have a phone answered, you know, these are things that really sort of touch on all aspects of how an organization runs and therefore touches on how the financial, the financial health of the hospital in general. So the way that quality improvement works is that, you know, you have people on the ground who really are the ones who can, who identify the problems and who really find real time solutions for those problems. We're hoping that we believe that by utilizing and by making providers the leaders, making providers the ones who really um, think about these problems, that we can more quickly and seamlessly implement the solutions to those problems very quickly. Management service organizations have the advantage in that they seamlessly integrate different aspects of medical care. Then emergency uh, the. Um, the electronic medical record, they integrate the um, you know, IT, they integrate building, billing, and they integrate that with the hiring of providers. And by being able to provide that sort of like a seamless integration, you can actually use quality in a much more effective way in order to find solutions to problems where, to problems like this that are affecting people at the ground. And in order to identify these problems at the ground, you have to be listening to the community, you have to be listening to the patients, and you have to be listening to providers because they're the ones who are the canaries in the coal mine. They're the ones who will bring those, the, bring those problems to attention so that you can use data to fix them effectively before they became, become huge issues like they have in the case of the um, patient who you know, patients who can't get appointments or get their prescriptions refilled at college clinic. Yes. Okay. Oh, sorry, if you don't mind speaking, yeah. Come on Come on it, it did remind me because it just hit me this past week that if our hospital is having problems and it closes, does that mean that our clinics are closing too? Mm-hmm. I mean, it just never had dawn on me until yeah. this past week. But so I want to be clear. I don't know that, and I, I don't think that we are saying that the hospital is going to close. I think that we are all very concerned because we have watched this sort of like you know decl- we've watched um, the hospital become increasingly financially distressed we've watched the departure of many staff without like you know some some sort of turnaround i think what we're saying here is that we have a solution that will bring us out of that point of distress it's not going to be easy and we've thinked about so the way that we're thinking about it is in a phased fashion so there is going to be a ter- there is going to be a point of turnaround where we have to make we have to prioritize decisions we have to um, Think about the low-hanging fruit that will bring in revenue more immediately into the hospital quickly. And we need to do this sort of forensic analysis of, um, of what's going on at the hospital to fix the issues that um, are effectively uh, um, impacting the, fine, fine, you know, the bottom line of the hospital and also impacting care the most and prioritize those things. That sort of turnaround situation, which is, you know, which is what Dr. Anderson is really an expert in, is going to probably a period of 6 to 12 months. Um, before we actually, you know, we before we get ourselves back on our feet. Then after that, there's going to be a period of growth where we build out service lines that we can identify that will bring revenue back to the hospital and also a value add to the community. Things like GI services, things that, you know, sur- ver- spe- surgical specialty services, things that we often send people to Albuquerque for, but that actually, you know, we could actually bring to the hospital here. So looking for those those um, revenue streams and also building in the, you know, th- these data components so that we can actually very quickly start to build out the um, quality improvement processes that will allow allow um, visits to become or, uh, visits to become more efficient and to become more value added when you, you so when you go to the outpatient clinic, you know that you're going to see your, your clinician on time, you're going to be able to get out within an hour. These are the things that you know we could be working on then. Um, and then after that is just a period of maintenance, making sure that we build in that because we've permanently built in the level of accountability and transparency that the community so sorely needs at the very beginning of this process, we are looking down the line five or six years, a decade from now, 20 years from now, and we're seeing an organization that still serves the community, that still looks to the providers in the community to be the stewardship to the community. We're looking at an organization that builds leadership within its organization, identifies talent from physician leaders who are, or provider leaders in the community, and trains them to become the leaders so, so that we're not subject to just bringing in People from the outside who we don't know, who don't have the trust of the community. This is what we're. This is how we're going to build in that. Ma- we're going to strengthen that maintenance piece of um, of the plan.
1: Yeah, I I th- I don't know. Uh, I'm probably, I may have given the, the wrong impression on that. I I'm talking about what it would look like with a closed hospital or with a lost hospital. Um, I don't know what it means when a hospital has seven days worth of operating cash on hand. To me, it doesn't sound good, but again, without a system that's transparent, I just don't know.
2: Now, let, me, let me take a shot at that one. What you, it's hard to say, and, and none of us in this room know what the future is, but organizations are either growing and thriving or dying. What you want is a hospital or a health system that is growing and thriving. And that that's where you need it to be. So how do we as a community figure out how best to make that organ make the organization grow and thrive? And that's what it's about. So it's not cutting back services to survive. It's it's adding things that can be necessary. And there there are hard times. There are some services that that you may end up losing through this. But You've got to have a future to look forward to. And you've got to be in a position so it can grow and thrive. And I don't know that anybody in the room says that the, currently the organization is growing and thriving. Yeah. So that, that's, that's where you are. Can, can organizations with seven days of cash last 30 years? Yes, they can. <laughs> it's difficult. It's a challenge. It's a battle. But what everybody wants is to see it grow and thrive. 100%.
0: With the right people. And I think we can do this. We have we have the talent and we have the commitment. We have the trust of people in this town. And these people are willing to organize for you, for the community, to make this a reality and to make sure that we not only have a, a institution that turns around and grows, but one that will be here for 20, 30, 40, 100 years and will continue to serve the community. I do want to just sort of ask a quick question. I mean, uh, um, I will, will, I'll do this exercise and then I'll just ask for any closing comments from our two um, speakers. But um, how many of you have had issues at RMCH and have thought about or have actually left the, hospitals, the hospital and are no longer seeking care there? Yeah. I'm seeing a good, you know, probably 30% of the room. And I can tell you that we have, you know, when the college clinic phones went down, We had a list of 40, 50 comments from people and many of them who said, my child needs care and I'm willing to drive to Albuquerque for at this point because I love Dr. Poole, I love my physician but I cannot reach them and that's just not an option for me or my child anymore. So how many of you who left the hospital believe that you would come back if you had a locally led organization that had the patients and the community and providers at its center Who believed in accountability, who built in accountability into a structure, how many of we'd be willing to come back to the hospital? Yeah. So basically every single person who raised their hand is willing to come back. So I think this is a plan that we can I you know, we've been listening the the community organization has been listening to the community. You know, there is a group of physicians here in the in town and providers in town who are listening to other providers in town and listening to what they think the solution is. And this is what the genesis of this, this is the genesis of this organization, this plan. This by listening to the community, listening to the people who are experts in the healthcare system and who want to be stewards for it. This is what we're asking for. So I would love to, um, I would love to close with any other, any other comments from Dr. Anderson, Dr. Putnam? No? Well,
2: thank, thank you for allowing me to be here today. I yeah. appreciate taking advantage of the fact that I happen to be in the state and, and I've worked with you for so long and wanted to see uh, the community up close and personal, so I appreciate the opportunity to be yeah. here today and, and and really admire the commitment from the community and the commitment from professionals like yourself to, to make it a better place to live and be and, and be healthy.
0: Yeah. And I, I just have to thank both of you because I think both of you in various... Um, capacities have served as mentors to me over the last few months. And I will say that, you know, there are so many people in this community who serve this role for each other, and for, you know, for me and for each other. So I think really we have the expertise here. And I think what doc, you know, Dr. Putnam's, you know, I, I think what, his, his, what he has given me the perspective on is that, you know, the, we, it does not take an outside person or an expert to run our hospital. It takes leadership that we trust, leadership that is curious and willing to learn. And I think we have that here. We don't have to have an outside management organization. We can grow it here in the community. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. So thank you so much for coming. If you have any other questions, please, you know, come and, um, come and find us.